0: Coming up on Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat.
1: The thing is, when you're in an England team, or any national team, it's the best players, supposedly, in the country. They are the best players for certain reasons. They're driven, they're committed, they're relentless with what they do. They're ultra-competitive, so there was going to be more clashes than, than a club. Because it is all the best players, whereas at a club, you have the best players who have probably more of a say and opinion. Everyone was just so desperate to win because they're so ultra competitive. Always wanted to play for England. Once we got to a game and we just knew what we needed to do and and why we were doing it, and sort of put all that stuff aside, maybe early on in the week, if you didn't agree with stuff, you'd be thinking about it. But once you got into the week, it was like, we're just here to win for England and for us Hi, I'm Mike Brown, professional rugby player and currently studying Masters in Sport and Directorship, and this is my episode of Sleep Eat Perform Repeat.
0: Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts David Clancy and Kieran Dunne. This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high performing individuals tick, why they do what they do and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons and learnings.
2: Today we spoke with Mike Brown, English professional rugby player with 72 caps for England. Mike has amassed 340 appearances for Harlequins and 500 points, 12 for Newcastle and 72 caps for the England National Rugby Union team. Predominantly a fullback, Mike has won three Six Nations titles with England and two English Premiership titles with Harlequins. He won the 2014 RBS Six Nations Player of the Championship award, and is renowned for his work ethic, tenacity, and ability to attack with ball in hand. Today, we unpack the fullback position and why that was the position for Mike. He started as a ten, as the heart of a six. We discuss leadership culture and high-performing teams, all areas of interest for Mike, which he is studying as part of the sports directorship at Manchester Metropolitan University. Mike explained the intricacies of bringing club players from different environments and playing styles together for the national team, and the challenges of that for England. He dived into his playing philosophy around training, his preparation, and the nuggets as to how we can all catch a high ball better, with mentions to Irish legends like Conor O'Shea and Gavin Duffy.
0: Quick mention to the sponsor of today's show, Hexus Live, your personalized fuel planner for improved athletic performance. Check them out on the App Store or the Google Play Store, and you can get an exclusive launch offer: thirty percent off for a limited time only. Use code Hexus30 at the checkout. Thanks again. And let's get to the show. Mike Brown, thanks a million for coming on, and joining us. How are you doing today, sir?
1: Yeah, I'm good. Thanks. No, thanks for having me. I had a little sneaky look at the the caliber of guests you've had already, so I'm I'm flattered that you uh, asked me to be on, and hopefully I can be as good as those those guys.
2: You're our first rampaging fullback we've had, so we're <laughs> kind of looking forward to diving into that. But before we get there, Mike, tell us a little bit what's going on in your world at the moment.
1: Yeah, so at the moment, just um, kind of in off season, uh, the rugby season's just finished um and i'm currently unemployed so trying to find a a new club at the moment um yeah so sitting tight and hoping for that but there's a lot of us that unfortunately are are out of jobs in the rugby world over in england with the salary cap and stuff dropping so yeah it's a bit frustrating um a lot of uncertainty and and a bit of stress with with that uncertainty and, and a bit of change going on for me as well personally so Myself and family are kind of sitting tight in Newcastle until we can get back to our uh, kind of where we're from, Um, be close to family and friends, which would be nice. Which we'll do in the first week of August, which we're massively excited to do. And hopefully, a a club follows quite soon after that. But if not, yes, still exciting times.
0: How novel is this for you? Because of being at Queens for so long, you maybe had that certainty, or maybe there was contract negotiations, but it was always felt like you were you were sticking around with that club. for a long period. When you go into this new sort of looking for clubs, changing, which other players do in their career, they do change a lot. What's it been like for you? Have you had to adjust? Have you had to market yourself a bit more than you would have previously? Yes,
1: yeah, obviously, i um, very different to what I've been used to for my whole career. You know, it's, it's important to say, first of all, I've been very lucky to have been able to stay at um, an amazing club for so long. I think it was about uh, eight, 17, 18 years. So I was very lucky to be there that long and that's such an amazing place. Whereas other guys, you know, they have to move around. They have to find jobs quite regularly. So at least I I didn't have to do that. And I was always a player that wanted to get the contract done and dusted early, sign reasonably long-term and then just crack on with my rugby and think about that up until what year, year and a bit ago. So, but yeah, it was my time to move on, unfortunately. Like most other people, I thought I'd stay there for my whole career. But, you know, you take the positives with that and maybe, and I do think this having to move clubs sort of set me up for what I want to do after rugby and helping me learn a few things about that, you know, players having to move, how to settle in um, a new place, uh, moving your family, all those sort of things that if I want to stay in, you know, elite high performance sport and kind of being a leader in that, having an understanding of what players have to go through um, when they're moving around clubs. You know, in terms of if I'm at a club off the field, you know the the entry entry and exit of players, um, which is massively important. You know, I've experienced that now, things like that. So, I do think having to move, even though it didn't feel great at the time, will set me up with some experience in terms of what I want to do um, after rugby.
2: That's really interesting because so many players can probably relate to that and have probably have been in your situation and then trying to navigate the next step. So, touching on Of course, we want you to get another contract, but besides that and besides the pitch, you're doing some other things and learning from that as well as the experience you've experienced with Newcastle and and now this little transition. What is it about these other pieces that you're learning that really you're finding quite interesting?
1: I think I've always had interest in in high-performance sports and how they tick and how they build their programmes and especially the ones that sustain success for long periods of time and individuals that do that as well. I've always had an interest in that and been a fan, I guess, of teams and individuals that are able to do that and what makes them tick. And I think, especially last few years, trying to delve into, this, I guess, the specifics of of culture and um, running programmes and uh, running organisations and find myself sitting back sometimes, you know, last couple of years thinking, oh, if I was in, in charge, I'd you know, I want to treat the player this way, or I want to treat the group of players this way, or how, wonder why they're doing this. Maybe they could do it this way. And thinking, trying to also reflect on loads of stuff through my career and, and trying to like, think what are the good bits, what are the bad bits? Or I wouldn't do that and if I had a chance to, to lead, or I would do that or I'd take this off someone individually. You know, for example, Conor O'Shea, who I'm sure you guys know, being a fellow Irishman, you know, probably one of the best leaders, um, off-field leaders that I've ever had. Just the way he galvanised a group to a shared goal and sort of mission and vision, and that's us as players, but also the rest of the club, the board, the CEO, everyone bought into what he bought into the, the club when he first started, you know, our playing identity, what we wanted to do, what we wanted to achieve. Going back to the contract situation, my contract was actually up when he first joined Quinns, but he hadn't even started his um, job at Quinns, but he came in probably three months, four months before he officially started at Quinns, just to sit down with me and tell me about his vision, his goal for the club, what he wanted to achieve, what he wanted me to achieve as an individual. And it was a no-brainer for me. He had me bought in massively um, to what it was about and everything he kind of promised, we went on to do as a group. and. Uh, individually. So yeah, he's a, he's a great example of someone I've learned and taken a lot from.
0: Looking specifically into that, and I'm sure you're doing case studies with the, the masters in sport directorship, the culture, the clear identity, the team full of leaders that you mentioned that Harlequin's team had in the successful year of 11, 12, what do you think were the reasons that that can't be replicated each year? And why is it so important that teams focus on getting that right before maybe technical, tactical, other pieces that come along and are seen as important as well.
1: I'll answer the last bit first. I think the reason that's so important is because it lays the foundation for everything else to follow on from. So having clear identity, having a clear culture, getting the right people in the right places in that culture, the right players to fit into that, everyone buying into that. You can't get tactical and technical side, in my opinion, if you don't have those foundations underneath to, to build off. So... Again, looking at Connor, because I've mentioned him already, that's exactly what he did when he first came in. He gave us a clear identity, right? This is the way we're going to play. We're all going to buy into that. Sometimes we will lose, but I believe he got us all to believe that if we kept playing our identity, we'd win more than we lost. And because we had such confidence and belief in it, that is what happened. And then with the culture, just working hard, simple things like working hard, good standards, and then he just got the right people people in so he had a great foundation in terms of the academy boys that were coming through in my opinion so that would be me <laughs> <laughs> um, guys like myself uh chris robshaw george robson John turner or george Lowe. i put him with danny cave no didn't come through the academy he joined really early on um so he was still really young guys like that uh ugo Monier, but then he filled in the gaps with people like nick evans mo fasabalu nick easter so we had a great blend of youth and exuberance and guys that have. Grown up kind of playing that style of way that, that Quinns are known for, um, but also guys that that had huge work ethic, were physical, desperate to achieve, to fill in the gaps. So yeah, that, that's that's the foundation for everything else to follow on from. That.
0: I'll just build on something there. David Dunn, as we mentioned off air, when he was working with Jack Quinns, I just asked him for a bit of background on you, Mike. And he said there was something that he loved about you was you would give everything to someone who you know was committed and was accountable and was giving everything to their job, their role. But sometimes if someone wasn't given that full commitment, you may not strike the perfect relationship because you have maybe a standard of excellence that you hold highly. If you held that for your career and if you agree with it, we'll discuss that as well. But if you held that for your career, did that ever cause you issues when maybe other players and other approach from professionals on the field, off the field didn't match up to that sort of, full-on commitment that sort of work ethic that you mentioned from that scene.
1: yeah firstly he's yeah, he's spot on with that with that <laughs> the way yeah the way he's described me i think um did it cause me issues yeah 100 percent because especially early on, on in my career i couldn't really understand people that weren't the same as me or maybe communicating and dealing with people that weren't the same as me but i think i think especially the last couple of years probably as i've matured and reflected a bit more you understand that and not everyone's the same as you and just because they're not the way I am doesn't mean they're not driven and they're desperate to achieve and they're not doing it their own way or some people do need a little nudge here and there and, but it's got to be done in the right way and I don't think I probably did that for the majority of my career and yeah so yes it did um, cause me a few problems but I guess that's about learning especially with again going going on to what I want to do after after rugby I'm going to have to be able to strike relationships up with people that aren't the same or have been the same as me through my career or are different characters or need different things so that's all part of the learning and maturing as a person but yeah it did it did cause me not issues but like confrontations or friction with certain people or yeah I just couldn't understand certain people but again if you're building a squad you need different characters and there's going to be people that maybe are more squad players that aren't as driven as the top players like an Owen Farrell or Carl Sinclair, for example. But you need those those other players that are happy, I guess, just to be squad players or um, get to a certain level, but, you know, a better team member because they offer different things, you know, they offer different things to the environment, they're more jovial, they're, they like the social side, so they'll get more involved in that, which you need as a team, um, which isn't really my sort of thing. Um, I'm more of a sit back and observe, I'm not a big drinker, but you need the other side of it, you know? So you need those type of guys as well. So so I think part of my maturity as a person and, and as, a, as a player is sort of understand that. Not that I still still got it right the last couple of years, you know, it's still really hard for me to understand certain people and the way they are and talking to certain people the right way or driving people a certain way. But yeah, I was, <laughs> yeah it, did, it, it did cause some confrontations and frictions
2: a book called Edge by Ben Littleton. And there's a fellow that he, he tells a story about Ben Darwin, who used to play for the Wallabies, who does a lot of work in cohesion and team dynamics. And what was I'm curious about with yourself, Mike, and especially touching what you said with Quinn's culture, shared identity, everyone understands where they're going, everyone understands their roles. The question we're always curious about, right? How do you build cohesion in the national setup then? So you've got the Quinn's players, right? you've mentioned a couple of them but then you've got Saris and then you've got the tigers and then you've got other teams all coming together to play for england you play you played for a lot how how does it work how can you how can you harness the best and get the best from them from a collective when you've got all these sort of different sort of pieces of culture coming together how can you form a high performing team from your experience
1: i mean it's in, it's incredibly tough and i'm not sure if any of my time with England, we ever got it completely right. Because also, you got chucking in, in, in the mix little things like. Good, because you hammered us a few times, right? <laughs> so we,
2: we wouldn't want to have got it much better at times. You yeah.
1: Know? When you're chucking little things into the mix, on top of things that you've said about being at different clubs and stuff, things like, you know, things like the amount that players get paid for playing for their country. And I know not many people like to talk about it, but it's a big thing. It's on your mind. Like, there's, financially, you're going to get rewarded very well for playing for England. So then you chuck that into the mix, everyone's desperate to play for that. And then it's playing for your country, which is a massive driver for everyone. And then, so you, you know, all those little things cause a bit of selfishness and, you know, the the depth of talent within England, you know, if you don't perform or do your job or are not in with the coach or the right sort, you know, the right people or don't train well, the next person's in, especially with someone like Eddie Jones, who's, you know, ruthless in terms of that. So you chuck all those sort of things into the mix and it's it's incredibly tough to do because everyone has their own sort of agendas and why they want to be there and what drives them and everyone's dreamed of playing for England and it's so big um, in everyone's head. So it's so hard to buy into a team but also have all those sort of thoughts in your head. Um, so yeah, it's, it's tough. And it, like I said, I don't know if we ever got it right, to be honest. It sounds like they are getting it a bit better now, and I know maybe the performances don't show it, but the noises that are coming out of the camp now, I think that might be down to probably the d- diversity of thought and leadership in their leadership group, so when I was with England in a more successful time under Eddie, it was very, and I have to be careful what I say, because not many people like it, but Sarri's led, it was, but they were the, they were the top team at the time, so that's understandable, they had all the best players and were playing the best in terms of uh, winning stuff. So naturally, they were more going to be in there. But I don't know if it created um, a diversity of thought and things like that because it very much felt like Saris plus guys that sort of fitted into that mould. I get in trouble for saying that, I'm sure, but um, not a lot of people would agree, maybe. but So so that was tough. But I think now it seems like they've got more of a mix of characters and players. So you've got some of Saris players like Owen still in there. Um, Jamie George, but then you've got Courtney Laws, who's lot much more relaxed, but you know, very much a leader in, in terms of what he does on the field and um with his physicality and his his standards of training and playing, but very chilled, like almost horizontal off the field. Um, Henry Slade, who's again quite relaxed as well, but he's from a different club. So then there's a different thought process there. Carl Sinclair, been at two clubs, Bristol and Quinn's. So he's got a bit of different thought there. So it creates for me a more diverse thinking and um, opinion and they can bounce ideas off each other and, and then come to an agreement where which way they want to go instead of it being a bit more geared and influenced a certain way, which might not be a bad thing, but I think for an England team, it's better to have a diverse thought. So then you create, I think then everyone out on the outside in, in terms of the, the squad of players probably feel a bit more like, their voice and opinion might matter a bit more. And this is just for me sitting back on the outside and looking in, you know, obviously I'm not in that, but yeah, it's incredibly tough. Like, yeah, and like I said, I don't think we ever got it completely right, even though we were successful and already, I don't know if we got it completely right in my opinion, but it's so hard, so hard, especially for, for an England team with all the things I mentioned and you guys mentioned as well.
0: Yeah, it wasn't, and we're speaking with this, like you have performed and you have achieved a lot during that time as well. It wasn't if as if it was a broken team or culture or anything. From your experience and your own perspective, if you're going in to play a game with maybe a teammate that you don't agree on, their, maybe their values, maybe something as deep as that, or you don't agree with their approach to something, how do you reframe your approach to make sure you're going to strike harmony with that player on the pitch, even though there is that maybe we don't click and that will happen across a team group of individuals. How do you make sure that you're both getting the most out of each other, even if you disagree on certain things?
1: Ooh, good question. Well, for me, I just wanted to win, so I wasn't really bothered. <laughs> wasn't really bothered. <laughs> um, yeah, you'd have disagreements. I guess mainly on the field, you clash and stuff. Because the thing is, with the thing is, when, when you're in an England team or any national team, it's the best players supposedly in the country. And they are the best players for that, for certain reasons. They're driven, they're committed, they're relentless with what they do. They're ultra competitive. So there was going to be more clashes than, than that club. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, there's kind of less of a hierarchy because it is all the best players where a club, you have the best players who have probably more of a say and opinion and maybe heard a tiny bit more, but yeah, because it's, because you have all those best players in the country, there is going to be, there's going to be clashes, but for me, I don't know. I I'd, I'd never really thought about that until you mentioned it there. I think just everyone was just so desperate to win because they're so ultra competitive and committed. Always wanted to play for England. I think once we got to to the game and and, and things like that, we we just we just knew what we needed to do and, and why we were doing it, and sort of put all that stuff aside. I think maybe early on in the week, if if you didn't agree with stuff, you'd be thinking about it. But once you got into the week, it was like. No, nah, we're just here to win for England and for us, to be honest.
0: Clear objectives
2: and focus or Yeah. What what about
1: the fullback position? Arguably
2: the loneliest position on the pitch, right? The last man standing. Around, who could be a fullback? Like, and we're thinking, you know, Jason Robinson, yeah, Latham, Keenan, Kearney, all these, all these great players, Mike Brown be known as a fantastic fullback. Thanks. What what was it about the position? That, that drew you like why did you become a 15 and kind of what is it about that position maybe that made you successful that if there's a young fullback listening to this you'll go oh, that, that worked for Mike I might do a bit of that I want to be just like Mike
1: so uh yeah I'm not sure many people think to themselves I'll be want to be like Mike to be <laughs> um sometimes I feel like that Gary Neville sort of player no one wants to be Gary Neville do you know don't say that about yourself <laughs> um and a, th- a bit like Gary Neville, actually, they were talking about how right backs just are uh, 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 guys that could, weren't good enough to be central midfielders <laughs> or centre backs <laughs> or, or physical enough to be centre backs. I think it's a bit like that for a fullback. You're kind of either a failed ten or not quick enough or elusive enough to be a, a winger um, <laughs> to get pushed pushed back to <laughs> fullback. Yeah, I start. I very much started off as ten. Oh, the fullbacks now are not happy with that comment. Yeah, there, right? maybe. Yeah. They're
2: like, but maybe he's. <laughs> if right, they wanted to themselves, yeah. Maybe them maybe says, I no.
1: fly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, so yeah, you, and, but you've got a bit of bravery about you, so you get logged back there. So yeah, I started out off as a ten and stayed there till I was about sixteen. But I was never good enough. Like I was a bit more selfish, which I'm sure would be, people would agree with. Yeah, a bit more wanted to run more instead of distribute and things like that. And then when I got to sixth form college at 16, a coach I had there, who's actually Joe Marchant's dad, he was the first guy to say, oh, how about you try fullback? I think the skills really suit you. I went there kicking and screaming because like most players, they kind of want to be a nine or a 10, you know, always on the ball, the the glamour position and stuff like that. Um, But once I got there, like I loved it. Like it suited everything that I was about, a little less structure than being a 10. So you could kind of roam around everywhere. I kind of liked the physical side of, being a forward, but I was never going to be a forward because I was skinny and stuff like that, like I'm um, today. But I loved getting in the mix sometimes. But then, as a fullback, you can kind of get in the mix and then get out again. Uh, you know, pick and goes, things like that. You can just kind of go everywhere as a fullback, so I love that. And then I think my competitive side just loved, you know, things like the high ball, the one-on-one tackles when someone breaks clear. And as a fullback, you should never really make that last ditch one-on-one tackle but it was that sort of competitive side of me that wanted that challenge and sometimes I'd be in games where I'd be like oh lads please miss a tackle I was just desperate to get involved <laughs> and then and make one so I'd want them to kind of miss one so then I could <laughs> get involved and once you get them down get over the ball I love that side of contestant at the breakdown yeah so it just kind of suited me you know I was a decent kicker as well I was not that good at high balls though which is I managed to to make into one of my soup strengths i think so i was never good at higher balls and then i think it was a year into my quinn's academy time it was andy friend who's now at connor um under dean richards they pulled me aside and just basically like look you're never going to play fullback for us because um you know you're not breaking on high ball <laughs> and i was like yeah and basically, friendy said to me, you know, when the ball's in the air, how confident are you that you're going to catch it? And I was a bit like, oh, yeah, kind of, yeah, so-so. <laughs> um, so they were just basically like, look, you need to go and work on your high ball because as a fullback, it's, it's so important. And it's proved to be even more important now because the kicking game's grown so much compared to, to back when I was uh, 18 or 19, I think it was. Um, so basically, luckily, Andy Friend was a, was a fullback. Um, originally, um, when he was a player back in, o- in Oz. So I had him to help me. And then Gavin Duffy was was still at Quinns then, another Irishman. So there's, there's a lot of Irish connections for me <laughs> through my career. So um, He was unbelievable under high ball, um, best at the club by miles, but also, you know, he's known for that. You know, he had a Gaelic football background, I believe. So I basically pulled him aside and I asked him to, to work on it with me and fair play to him. You know he worked hard with me on that you know he could see I was coming through um as a young fullback desperate to take his spot so fair play to him for for doing that for me which now has turned into one of my stoop strengths I think and managed to help me get um to the levels that I've managed to get to so I so I owe him a lot. So yeah there's a big big Irish connection there I guess. And then you know a few years later then Conor Shea turns up another Irishman another fullback, fullback um who helped me work on it even more. So yeah, I've had some brilliant people to help me help me with that.
0: Looking into it, if you're playing a game and you feel like, okay, and Ireland done a lot back in the day with Schmidt, targeting fullbacks with high balls coming in. We used to play a lot of that kicking game. Sometimes that can be a tactic, and you see George Ford bringing back the spiral bombs a bit more mm-hmm. now as well. If you're in a game and maybe you don't catch the first one, it's a knock-on or it doesn't go your way, what do you do then? Is it self-talk? Is it... You know, look to your teammates around you, what do you do to get back in the moment so you don't make another mistake or dwell on it too much yourself?
1: Right inside, I think. Um, especially <laughs> with, you notice know, George Ford with the high balls, um, the spiral bombs that are just going to keep coming. You, For me, I I just always leant back on um, two key points of, of catching a high ball. Whenever I drop one, I just lean back on that. Um, so then you kind of forget about it and just focus on those, which I try and do for every kick anyway and they were they were they were things that gavin Duff, duffy actually taught me uh technical points on my high ball that's what i always fall back on on every heart every catch i'm going for and then that helps me folks, if i do make an error but um it's keeping your hands high so he always taught me keep your hands above um your eye level the ball moves faster than your eyes so if, if your hands down here um as the ball goes past you will lose sight of it and that's when normally you drop it so if you keep them above your eyes you always with the ball and then the second one was squeeze your elbows um mm. as you're catching it because then it creates a nice basket and then another reason you see a lot of guys drop it is they, they've done the first bit then just slips through because there's you know a gap there so it's hands and elbows and that's that's why i try and teach any young guy that i'm training alongside that's struggling with the high balls hands and elbows and you might actually see me if, if you watch me play before I, if I get time before I set up for catching that box kick or something, I'm always doing that with my hands, and that's kind of my trigger to get my my hands above my eyes. And then I just think to myself, squeeze the elbows. So I just fall back on that really. Just, I guess two triggers um, physically and and uh, mentally in my head um, when I make a mistake, but also when I'm trying when I'm doing a skill anytime really. Besides playing, what
2: are the other things you you like in the week that that maybe even help you play? Like, is it is it some of the recovery stuff you like? Is it none is of it? it. None, <laughs> of, none of it, training, no. none of
1: that, just playing. Yeah, not really. Like, I wasn't, I've never been one for like loving training massively or loving the recovery side. I just knew how important it all was to do it to a certain standard. You know, the recovery side probably later on, probably back, back half of my career, the more that came into rugby and more you see some of these other athletes that use it so effectively in all sports um training i've never been one just to i train to be ready for for the weekend to perform on the weekend so i do everything i need to do and i learned this as well as i went through my career especially being in england camps that um your preparation and how good it is um, breeds confidence which will then help you perform on a weekend because you know if you know you've Oh, I've not caught some high balls this week. or I've not done the amount of kicking I should be doing, or I've not done this part of recovery. You're going to go in the weekend at kick off thinking, "Shit, I haven't, I haven't quite done that properly. I haven't looked at that, or uh, you know, I'm not quite ready." That preparation um, helps your confidence, which breeds into a performance at the weekend, and that's for a team and an individual as well. Whereas if you can know you've ticked off everything you possibly can, and do that consistently. Um, for me that 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 leads into the performance and you don't even have to worry about performance really you're just confident in what you've done and you're just ready to go Um, so that's the way i've sort of viewed it but not that i've enjoyed most of it to be honest
0: (laughs) (laughs) and then looking to maybe the habits and behaviors i've seen you mentioned um, consistent behaviors and persistence being so important to get to the high levels how are you applying that to academic life to master's and working maybe with different people from different sports and visiting places like um St George's with the FA
1: yeah exa- exactly that like I, I tried to throw myself into the transition stuff like I've done my career I can't remember who who um recommended it to be like that um but I've just took that on board and that's what I've tried to do with my academics you know with my my uni work and stuff like that exactly the same making sure I prepare for for the assignments and then um in the right way because i know that if i don't prepare the right way my assignment won't be up to to a standard especially being someone that hasn't had academic experience like uni or something like that since i was sixth form at 18 which is a good long time ago (laughs) and now i'm 36 so um yeah i have to kind of put the effort in and i'm kind of learning as i go along even think little things how to write properly how to use a computer how to read properly how to take the right information in. During a lecture, um, I remember my first lecture start of the academic year. I was literally trying to take all the information in, scrambling scram to write notes, and I just came over like, "Oh my god, this, this is too much." And then I kind of realised, now you need to take the bits that are important to you, you know, kind of filter it out um, as much as you can, you know, kind of look at the assignment that's coming up at the start of the unit uh, instead of middle to the end because then you know exactly what you need to learn more than other stuff and what's going to be relevant for your assignment and things like that. So yeah, I've just tried to throw in, throw myself into it like I do uh, my rugby and kind of become obsessed with all, it all really. That's kind of a, a, a word I'd use for my rugby career, obsessive with certain things. If I don't do certain things in terms of my rugby, you know, you feel like, oh my God, I need to do that. I can't not do it. And then you just find a way to do it. It's the same with this stuff really. I know I need to get into environments to experience certain things because I haven't yet done it as a career. I know I need to do th- certain things for my uni to make sure it's a, a good standard because I'm desperate to pass. I'm obsessed to pass because I know it's going to lead to to good things later on. So yeah, that's just the way I'm trying to try and go about it, to be honest.
2: One of my last points, Mike, is we spoke to Owen Eastwood on this and, and met him over, over in Twickenham actually a couple of months ago. And it seemed like he did a lot of interesting things with yourselves in, in and around probably the, the world you're learning about at the moment. So kind of it, it is really the, the high performing teams and what makes you take that is, is what's really piquing your interest moving forward. Is it?
1: That's the... Yeah, definitely high performing teams in, in elite sport, I think that's what I'm really interested in. That's what um, really excites me and actually probably moving into other sports is what's really exciting me at the moment, not staying in rugby. For, very, for various reasons. Um, but yeah, just that, that's what excites me. So that's what I'm working towards. Easier said than done though.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what have you learned from maybe NBA? I think I, we'd actually looked at your classmates and looked through the, the course itself. It's so diverse with different people coming from all backgrounds. Have you learned anything unexpected that you were like, I never even thought about how the NBA do it that way, how Man City women's team do it this way, Liverpool, etc
1: and not unexpected really. You learn, like just looking at my peer learning groups, you get a bit into to, to learning groups to really um, help and support each other. Um, and just looking at my peer learning groups, so I've got a, a, a lady on there from uh, Man City Women's, just learning about, she's in like the the operations side, so just learning how they get the team ready, what she, she does on our day-to-day to, to help achieve that which is good learning for me if I want to then lead, you know, someone that's helping the team in terms of the operations and the management side of that. Um, or there's a guy that works at Rangers, Craig, just the way he, he's like, he's really quiet and reserved, but like the way he, he then has listened so well that he's able to ask such a good question and you're like, geez, how's he come up with that question? That's an unbelievable question. <laughs> I don't have any examples off the top of my head, but like the amount of times I've sat there in a group discussion and the other guys as well, and you think that's a good question. <laughs> like he must listen, like he must, first he must listen so well to what everyone's saying and taking, like taking so well the information, but then to come up with a question the way he does, like just, just learning that from him or observing someone do that makes you, realize how important listening and asking good questions are because it creates great discussion for the rest of us just little things like that and just having conversations another guy that's just moved to man united he he's in he's his work's kind of on the diversity and and inclusion side of, of things just listen to him um he puts he he used to be a consultant to put reports together for Premier League clubs. Now he does that for Man United, but just the way he puts reports together, how he how he looks at diversity and inclusion, which is so important for, for teams nowadays to function. I'm sure everyone will agree with that. And also actually hearing about their backgrounds and their lives coming up hmm. um, is is also uh, eye-opening and really important and, and great learning for me as well, because they're all from different walks of life. They've, They've um, experienced different things. They've come through their pathways diff- very differently as well to, to the roles that they've got to. And they're actually working in in roles at the moment. So for me, who's never kind of worked in a normal job, <laughs> a professional athlete, to be around people that are actually in in those roles in elite sport, living it day to day is huge learning for me as well. And actually um, that peer learning group in terms of support and guidance for someone that's not very academic one and hasn't had anything um, um, in terms of experiencing acad- anything academic for a long time they've been a great support and guidance for me to lean on um, which has been a huge help um, which shows the character of people they are i guess my last one mike
2: what would craig from rangers say if we were chatting to him about you so you said what they bring to the group and what you're learning from them what what do you think they're maybe getting from you in that peer learning group?
1: What would they what, oh,
2: I don't know? Um, besides knowing how to catch the highball, which we've got now yeah. as well, right? Like,
1: yeah. yeah. I think they quite yeah. I think they quite like the getting the athlete perspective on things because I've been in in teams where in high performance um, elite teams, they haven't had that experience, so they get that side of things. Because they're striving to be in in positions in sport that that I want to get to, but they need to understand, I guess, what we're talking about: high performance teams, culture, identity, on the on the athlete's perspective side of things. So I think they look quite like that. So I'm kind of the athlete perspective part of the group, and then they offer the proper information and and uh, <laughs> <laughs> valuable
0: insights, I'm sure. Last question of the show, and. It's one that we ask everybody who comes on is what does high performance mean to you, Mike Brown?
1: Yes. Like this is a huge question, isn't it? I think things like, as we all know, striving to be the best you can be, and that doesn't have to be as an athlete that can be in everyday life, whatever job you're in, whatever role you are in life, just always try trying to be the best in that as you possibly can be. I think um, cons- consistency with your habits and your behaviors And again, it doesn't have to be, you know, as an athlete, but it can be little things like, I don't know, picking up litter not chucking on the floor, you know, even things like making your bed in the morning, just little things like that that set you up for the day or create good behaviours and habits. And then everything else builds on that. I think one thing for me that shows high performance is finding a way, always finding a way to turn up and and do your job because there is days when you just kind of need to get by, but it's very easy to... Not even do that. It's just think. Oh, I don't feel like it today. I'm a bit tired today, or I feel a bit ill, or I've had a bad night's sleep, or yeah, just not feeling it today. But the high-performing individuals that I know always find a way to get their shit done, basically. And again, I don't think that has to be in an elite, elite um, sport. I think that can be in a, in any walks a walk of life. Um, you know, we all have day. We all have days that we think, ah, oh, we don't want to do that today, or we we, just, we don't want to do the washing up, or we don't want to make our bed. You know, little basic things, but you just find a way get it done, and then you move on to the next thing, and and then the next day you'll feel a lot better, and then you can strive to be to to improve on on certain things. So, yeah, finding a way. I think longevity, especially in sport, shows high performance. We all know the famous ones: LeBron, Ronaldo, Messi. Federer, people like that. (laughs) Point at me. I'm (laughs) unemployed. I'm currently unemployed, (laughs) so I don't know if I count. But temporarily, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, Richard Wigglesworth at the weekend, seven finals, uh, seven final wins. I think longevity shows high performance because you've you've clearly done high performance things in all aspects of your life to get that longevity. In my opinion, another one would be resilience. I think that's huge. If you want to be a high performer and again it doesn't have to be as an athlete and i think some a lot of young people now are struggling with this resilience and i think it should be taught in schools as well as as well as leadership and communication i think that's another subject to talk about but i don't think the schools are teaching the right things in terms of all that but resilience is a huge one for me i guess it, should, it i guess it goes back to the finding a way like having resilience is high performing you know coming back from setbacks just looking at athletes from injuries or non-selection there's been a lot of studies on how trauma leads to to success and i you know i think i think that but you have to be resilient to to be able to do that i think it's too easy to to feel down after a setback however big or small so resilience for me shows high performance and this is something i've learned you know for only a few months ago i think the ability to be present is a sign of high performance, and again, that's in every walk of life, and that's something that I don't do well. I think, I think, just being a father, being present, you know, when you've got other things in your mind and other worries and other stresses, or you know, what you need to do for work or things like that going on, it's it's it can be hard to be present at times. Um, as as a as a husband, um, that's massively important. So you have a, a good home life, present in your in your job, so that you're not worrying about certain things, you're fully present and committed to what you're to what you're doing. So then you can do it to high standards. So I think, and it's something that I'm working on definitely at the moment, um, with a great guy, Craig White, is being present because that's that's hugely important if you want to be high performing. And Craig White should should you should guys should speak to him because you know he's an unbelievable individual and in what he's done in his career and, and things like that. So there's a little little uh, recommendation for you. And David
2: Cosgrave is a common friend, speaks a lot of Craig White.
1: Yeah, he's, he's an unbelievable man, a uh, human being, and um, he's had an unbelievable career. So yeah, he's I he's just reached out to him recently and he's massively helping me with that sort of thing, because especially, I think, as a as an athlete transitioning, that's hugely important.
2: Mike, thanks for sh- showing up all the time and giving us so much there today. That piece, even about the present, Piece really resonated as well with us. So, thanks very much for, for all you've done. Wishing you the very best with your the next move, with, with, which, whatever that is, and also with, with your continued studies. And we, we really enjoyed today. Thanks a lot. Uh,
1: thanks a lot for having me. I really appreciate it. Enjoyed chatting. And hopefully, I lived up to the, like I said, at the start, of the caliber of, of guests you've you've already had. So, 100%, <laughs> You'll be great at high balls now. So, I'll <laughs> be teaching my son that later. Like, look, you, you're kind of,
2: you could be a 10, a 6, oh, 15, man. Yeah. <laughs> two
1: top pizza. <laughs>
2: there
1: you go that's it for sure brilliant thanks Million. Uh thanks a lot
0: thank you for listening to today's episode of sleep eat perform repeat a story of high performance this was brought to you by Howora a whole person well-being company founded and run from Dublin Ireland find out more at howoralife.com spelt h-a-u-o-r-a life.com please rate review and share the podcast some people want it to happen some wish it would happen
1: Others make it happen. The goat, Michael Jordan.